you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome. You're listening to I Might Be Wrong. I'm Rich. And I'm Henry. Hello, Rich. How are you? I'm good, mate. How are you doing? You've had a hectic few days, haven't you? You've just got back to the country. International travel in a weekend for a wedding with about five hours sleep in between uh, means... I'm probably not on my best form, which is great because I know you like the sound of your own voice. Um, so, so you wow. can do most of the talking on this one. Uh, I don't like the sound of my own voice. I do like talking. <laughs> that's it's kind of the same thing, almost. <laughs> maybe I don't know. Um, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm actually less hungover today than I thought it was going to be. It was the Bristol Craft Beer Festival yesterday, so we went to the the daytime session that starts at eleven thirty in the morning and goes through to four thirty in the afternoon, uh, and then we went to a couple of venues afterwards, but only had one drink in each, and then went to bed about ten, thinking it it felt like two in the morning. I was so exhausted. Yeah, uh, so yeah, that's a good effort. Your your liver must be um, struggling or just recovering at the moment. Uh, it, it's not complaining loudly, which is nice. I'm despite eleven hours sleep, ten hours sleep, lots of sleep. Anyway, I'm still feeling a bit tired today. So, yeah, I suspect my voice sounds a little deeper than usual. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's turn our attention to the matters at hand because yes. uh, for a day when we're both a little bit on the slow sides, you've managed to pick probably one of the biggest names in music ever so <laughs> no no pressure but who who's on today i have picked the inimitable bob dylan and his album blood on the tracks from 1975 which wow might might be a bit of an odd one in terms of albums cuz he's obviously better known for his mid 60s stuff yeah well i was looking at this cuz his 60s albums were really the where he made his name but this one is what it's 10 years later almost and it's, it's number 15. It's like he's had 14 albums before this. It's incredible. He's so prolific. Why did you pick this one? Ridiculously prolific. Okay, so before we get into any of this stuff, I want to start with a disclaimer. I am a long way from being the biggest Dylan fan on the planet. I really like his stuff and I have a nice connection to it. But there are plenty of people out there who know far, far more about him, who have listened to far more of his back catalogue. I think I probably own two of his albums and I've probably listened to half a dozen in total. So if you enjoy this stuff and you want to know more about Dylan go and check it out somewhere else because there's loads of places with huge amounts of information that were fascinating and we couldn't even scratch the surface in one podcast here. Yeah, there are diehard Dylan fans that I've met out there who who consider only owning 10 of his albums like, Puh, who are you? You're not a real fan. <laughs> so, yeah. And I don't think I'll argue with them. No. I'm not someone who claims to be a huge Bob Dylan fan. I just enjoy some of his music very very much to the point where this album has i couldn't sleep on friday evening i went to bed and i just had two of the songs from this album going round and round my head and i had to put other music on so i could actually sleep it just grabs hold of you awesome where did you first come across him my mum's a big Dylan fan. She's got a couple of his albums from the 1960s. So I think she has Highway 61 revisited on vinyl. Mm. I have, you know, those very old snippets of memories from when you're like six or seven years old. 
I have some of those, particularly of the opening track, Like a Rolling Stone, which I think as a kid, I was confused by the fact that he was singing about Like a Rolling Stone and there was a band called The Rolling Stones and somehow they were one and the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> but they are very different. Yeah. They're both bluesy, I guess. Early merged memories. Yeah. Yeah. And I totally understand that there are going to be people who will argue that this is a long way off, you know, the the best of his stuff. And would argue for Blonde, blonde and blonde, blonde, Highway 61, yeah. Revisited, The Freewheeling, Bob Dylan. Normally those are the ones in that kind of top five of Bob Dylan lists. But this this one is a it's an album that, knowing that I liked Bob Dylan, knowing how important he is as a singer-songwriter within the last 60, 70 years... I wanted to listen to more of his stuff. And you remember going to FOP and you'd go in there and they'd have classic albums for a fiver at a time when most of the new stuff coming out was, you know, 10, 15 quid on release. Mm -hmm. And so I went through a period of just buying a whole load of albums that either I had borrowed from the internet or that like this one, I knew the artist, I knew that it was an important album of theirs. And so I bought it as a, I should listen to this and get to know it. Yep. And this is the one that really, really stuck with me out of his work. I should probably mention Bob Dylan, born Robert Allen Zimmerman in 1941, is an American singer-songwriter, author and visual artist in typically understated fashion. Wikipedia suggests that Bob Dylan is, and I quote, often regarded as one of the greatest songwriters of all time, Dylan has been a major figure in popular culture during a career spanning nearly 60 years. Yeah. Yeah, it's a decent summary. It, it does sum it up. I mean, you, you mentioned author. I, I read his autobiography a while back, and and that's almost like his music. It's very different. It's very interesting about his his early life and traveling around and getting his inspiration and going through all these random American towns. It's really worth a read. If you're well, I was going to say if you're a Bob Dylan fan, you should read it. But if you're a Bob Dylan fan, <laughs> you, you will have read it. So exactly. And this album is in my mind the most raw and emotional of his albums there's that pure raw emotion the intimacy that's what brings me back to this time and time again he's mournful he's furious sad scornful at times he's playful he denies that this is an autobiographical album many people have speculated that most of the songs are about the breakup of his marriage and subsequent divorce he says none of these are they're all about people places times that he's sort of come up with in his imagination but i can't listen to these without thinking that there's a lot of that stuff leaching in around the edges even if they're not specifically about that stuff yeah i did a bit of reading up on this because i assumed it just was a about him and and about Mm -hmm. a breakup of his marriage but uh yeah i read that as well and and it's interesting that he manages to he really tries to dissociate his actual life from his music which is which is curious i think because some of his work is so maybe it's just so deeply emotional he tries to present it as bob dylan the musician rather than bob dylan the human i do wonder whether there's an element of him recording this album because he needed to get it out of his system and then a year or two down the line thinking this is way too vulnerable i don't like feeling this vulnerable in terms of where this music is and then immediately deciding that he has to just pour scorn on it so that people don't keep speculating there's a great quote from him saying you're a big girl now well i read that this was supposed to be about my wife 
I wish somebody would ask me first before they go ahead and print stuff like that. I mean, it couldn't be about anyone else but my wife, right? Stupid and misleading jerks these interpreters sometimes are. I don't write confessional songs. Emotion's got nothing to do with it. It only seems so like it seems Laurence Olivier is Hamlet. Well, actually, I did write one once and it wasn't very good. It was a mistake to record it and I regret it. Back there somewhere on maybe my third or fourth album. Interesting. Yeah, I'm still on the... I think this is more autobiographical than he's willing to admit, but it's a self-protection thing to to just stop all the speculation. It's a bit like when you kind of go through that teenage poetry writing phase and you write some stuff and you think oh yeah I'll be a, an amazing author one day and you write it and then look back at it a year later and go oh my god <laughs> no one can ever see this but his stuff went straight out into the open air and um and people did yeah we should talk about Dylan's voice because that is probably the most polarizing aspect of his music yeah go on y- you start I'll, I'll chip in <laughs> so I have a quote from Nat Hentoff about his early days in New York City, noting that while no one doubted the young man's talent, the voice gave some pause. Quote, Some found its flat Midwestern tones gratingly mesmeric. Others agreed with the Missouri folk singer who had likened the Dylan sound to that of a dog with his leg caught in barbed wire. (laughs) The voice was so harsh and the song so bitterly scornful of conformity, race prejudice and the mythology of the Cold War that most of his friends couldn't conceive of Dylan making it big, even though folk music was already on the rise. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's probably one of thousands of very similar reviews, I guess, or or comments on on his voice. What, what do you think? I think his voice is a strength. I think there's an honesty about his voice and the delivery of emotions very much at the surface. I think in a purer voice, it can be smoothed over a bit or buried. There's soul at the heart of this voice, and there's no distractions from that. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I just remember listening to him the the first time and the first 30 seconds did my head in but the the strength of his songwriting and the delivery kind of it kind of pulls you in yeah and you can imagine dylan coming on the radio if he's driving in your car and you've not heard him and you hear the voice for the first 10 seconds and you just change station and go god what the hell is that right but once you listen through a dylan album you kind of it almost like your brain gets on its wavelength and then you kind yeah. of you understand it so it, it's a funny one but it, it can't be that bad given the number of albums he sold <laughs> well it's i think that's part of it is the fact that he has a distinctive voice you know you think if you're gonna have someone who has a distinctive voice it either has to be so incredibly beautiful that you're immediately attracted to it or it has to be in some way distinctive we talked about people like Tom York. Tom York has a Marmite voice. There are people who just can't get past the sound of his nasally delivery to the actual beauty of it all. And I can understand that. The same with Dylan. Yeah. And well, you kind of wonder whether you hear people with beautiful voices who can control their voice brilliantly and can go across octaves mm-hmm. and their training is incredible and you can imagine thinking if my voice is like this and I can sing so well how come this guy's getting all the credit um so I could kind of I mean, there's maybe a bit of jealousy in there as well for his success with a with a slightly braying voice like that yeah I can I can understand other artists being a bit scornful and I can understand critics who don't think he's a genius 
using that as a stick to beat him with. But he can actually sing. If you listen to Nashville Skyline, he'd laid off the cigarettes for that album, apparently. <laughs> and uh, and songs like Lay Lady Lay from there, he has a, a nice voice. It's Again, it's not the best voice that the world's ever heard. But I find that stuff a bit too smooth. I actually prefer the... yeah that rawer version of his voice. Yeah, I, I'm completely with you. I mean, yeah, Lele is a, a classic example of he's almost toned it down a little bit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a great song. But you're right, if, if you want an album, something like this or his 60s work is, is really where you want to start digging. Yeah, and part of it is that there's no distraction from his his lyrical skill, which obviously that's where most people place the dylan genius tag on yeah they'll say ignore the sound because he's a poet and listen to what he's singing about yeah and this guy wrote the times they are a changing and blowing in the wind before he was even 23 wow <laughs> yeah ridiculous yeah he inspires a lot of covers as well so anywhere from Jimi hendrix's all along the watchtower to guns and roses knocking on heaven's door there's all sorts of people who have covered his work yeah, I was going to start going through a list of them and you've mentioned two that I've picked up. But actually, there's such a back catalogue. I mean, we've mentioned that Blood on the Tracks is album 15 of his. There's so many songs to choose from. I mean, <laughs> even I think Coldplay do a, a live version of Simple Twist of Fate, um, which I haven't heard and probably for the better. But really? um, yeah, so everyone's had a, had a dig at a Dylan song at some point. Yeah, I remember reading while I was doing research for this that Miley Cyrus has one of his songs, I can't remember which one, incorporated into her live tracks as well. So yes, it doesn't matter who you are on the music spectrum, from very serious, more niche artists to people who are just in the pop game, people love Dylan. Yeah, and it's a clever move, isn't it? Because you take all of his brilliant lyrics you put your voice on it and some people will think that's even better <laughs> although people have come a cropper doing that uh there was a uh i think it was hooting echo the blowfish. The, uh hooting the blowfish yes thank you they did an album where they used a load of his lyrics and musical riffs and all that kind of stuff and, and reimagined it in their own voices <laughs> and then dylan's lawyers came along and went yeah we, we'll have most of that money thank you and a songwriting credit and apparently hooty were like yeah yeah fair enough i saw that they got instantly pinged by the lawyers and it was an instant out of court settlement i think it was really really quick they were like yeah yeah we totally ripped it off are you okay with that mr dylan no (laughs) okay here's some money (laughs) yeah i think he ended up with like half the future royalties from that album and apparently they didn't hold it against him they were like yeah it's, it's fair enough we probably we probably should have asked yeah it's nice that it was settled so quickly one of my favorite inspirations is subterranean homesick alien which tips its hat to subterranean homesick blues subterranean homesick blues is a brilliant music video well we're talking radiohead for those that um may have missed the reference you've seen that video right with the cards and him dylan just just standing there while his song's playing completely straight faced just dropping cue cards as they work through the lyrics turns out one of the guys chatting in the background is alan ginsburg alan ginsburg who remind me who that is famous american poet and important 60s 70s cultural figure oh, that's why i didn't recognize him i'm, I'm not very good with my <laughs> 60s and 70s cultural heroes that that's a great video go and go and watch that it's credited as being one of the first pop videos 
of, of all time. Well, I was going to say the, the, the dropping of cue cards, that's been done quite a few times, but that's probably one of the first times it was put on tape, I guess. Yeah. We should probably chat a little bit about how this album was received because Dylan was pretty universally lauded as being brilliant in the 60s. But coming out of the late 60s and into the early 70s, he started recording albums that weren't getting nearly the level of critical reception or even commercial success. Having said that, the album before this and after this both went to number one, but there was definitely a lull in terms of Dylan fans who weren't as impressed with his work, critics who were saying he's run out of creative juices. And so this came in with pretty mixed reviews. So Nick Kent in The Enemy described the accompaniments as often so trashy they sound like mere practice takes. And in Rolling Stone, John Lando wrote that the record has been made with typical shoddiness. <laughs> but it has become much better regarded over the years. Dylan said in a radio interview, a lot of people tell me they enjoy that album. It's hard for me to relate to that. I mean, it, you know, people enjoying the type of pain, you know? <laughs> like there's this whole thing of like, how can you enjoy something that has that much emotional damage and pain on record but I think that's why people love it it's something to relate to and everyone's been through you know relationship breakups timing being wrong whatever it happens to be yeah I guess we've already gone through the phase in the what in the kind of mid to late 60s where he went electric so he's changed his tune a lot and he went from acoustic then he went electric got people kind of grumpy or his, his other fans then he went a bit quiet as you said and now we get to blood on the tracks which suddenly out of nowhere gets people's attention well it's very much back to its folksy roots i guess in terms of the dylan sound and it was really interesting doing research on these sessions because depending on who you read and who you listen to there's some fairly <laughs> opposite views in terms of what happened so if you read articles that have interviews with the musicians so there were effectively only three or four sessions that created this album there's a session in new york where the album was originally recorded but these musicians came in and dylan had a ton of music he was apparently really short with people he was refusing to give people a chance to get to know the music he was not really teaching them how to play this stuff. And there's a lot of, I guess, almost resentment from those musicians that they weren't given a true shot of of producing what they felt they could have produced given half a chance. And Dylan, other people have said that he came in very prepared for it, like had a load of music, had a load of songs and was just had short shrift with people that he felt weren't up to scratch. But that to me seems a bit unfair. Yeah, I've, I've read both sides of it. I mean, there are some guys saying he was drinking a lot during the takes and that he was almost rushing through teaching people the new songs that they had to play even before the last ones were kind of finished and he would jump around between tracks and then he was almost one by one telling people to stop playing because yeah they didn't like it which is is weird and and I mean we go back to his voice there was a funny fact I saw where in Idiot Wind for that recording um, on the New York track when he sings daydreaming about the way, way things sometimes are, his piratical voice on that bit, um, the, ba <laughs> the, that. the bass player, you could hear him snigger on the actual track of the New York recording one. He actually laughed and they didn't take it out. Brilliant. So if you listen to the New York recording, Wait, he's... It's the New York recording, because Idiot Wind comes from Minnesota recordings, right, on the actual album. Right. But there's yeah. 
a release that came out, I think, in the 90s, where it's called the Dylan Sessions, I think, one to three. Yeah. And a load of these tracks or takes from these tracks ended up on there that were supposed to go on the album and then never did. So that's what you're talking about. That's right, exactly. So it's not on Blood on the Tracks, but you can you can hear it in this this other session. And there's a, there's a bit of a snigger when Dylan goes off <laughs> on his, <laughs> his funny voice. Brilliant. So this whole approach, when Enemy and Rolling Stone talk about this being rushed and a bit shambolic, they, they weren't far off. There was certainly an element of him just pushing musicians through and not really paying attention to them. I think it's shelter from the storm ended up being recorded late in the sessions and it's just dylan acoustic guitar the guy on bass whose name i've forgotten and that's it it's, it's a beautiful beautiful recording for it and doesn't need other instruments around and you wonder whether maybe part of dylan's genius is that he's sort of very exacting knows exactly what he wants and just it's like this is what will work and that's it yeah well if you listen to tangled up in blue with his harmonica which starts off all over the place that's made it onto the final cup yes and he apparently was he only realized he was out of tune with the harmonica about five or six bars in you suddenly hear this sort of scooting around and getting back into like where it should be yeah it's strange but the fact that it made it on means he's he's kind of cool with that slightly rough edge which i think is endearing i i I love that If, if you're going to produce an album you either absolutely nail it or you give it this kind of raw feeling which just i think supports the emotion in his voice and it all comes together really well one of the things about this album was that he wanted to go back to recording as a live band as a feel for it rather than recording individual tracks which in the 70s that's where people were starting to go that way and in fact have been doing that for a while but what happened with this was after the new york sessions People were generally happy with the album, but Dylan wasn't and had been spending time with his brother, David, who'd sort of suggested, well, maybe maybe we can have a go at re-recording some of this stuff. So they were in Minnesota, which is, as I mentioned, where he's from over that Christmas period. And they decided to get some of the local musicians who were very, very highly regarded people who play a lot of folk and jazz and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And over December 27th and... December 30th they had two more sessions where basically what happened was David was looking for a specific guitar and called a guy called Kevin Odegaard to try and get hold of this guitar and Odegaard figured that a guy that he knew called Chris Webber might have it and this guy was a local guitar shop owner but also a musician he calls Chris Webber Chris Webber is like yeah I can get hold of one of those like who do you need it for and there's this sort of like can't really tell you from (laughs) from both angles so Odegaard had already asked David and David had been like yeah can't 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 tell you who it's for I just need to get hold of it (laughs) (laughs) secret squirrel yeah and and apparently none of them all the musicians sort of had a good idea that it was going to be Dylan because obviously Dylan's the biggest name in Minnesota music for a while there's lots of secrecy So they all come in, but apparently none of them told anyone what was going on because all of them could have been like, Dylan's at the studio and like people coming in and like trying to rub a neck on the sessions, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. But yeah, just just amazing. There's a lot of credit that seems to go to these musicians in terms of some of the stuff that they were doing that was keeping Dylan happy. It's the mark of a professional, right? Right. Yeah. 
Kevin Odegaard pulled in a lot of the guys once Weber had kind of contacted him to get him on board. Uh, and he brought in a drummer called Bill Berg. Now, Bill Berg was a jazz drummer. And so a lot of the little touches on the drumming in this are purely Berg deciding how to play this stuff and sort of just off the cuff doing it. And apparently a lot of what he was doing was really sparking Dylan to be like, oh yeah, that's really working and, and being excited about it. And awesome. so he almost credits Berg with being the guy that really helped make these sessions work and helped Dylan be comfortable enough and happy with what was going on because he was just such a skilled drummer and all of that stuff was just bringing to life what Dylan wanted. Fuck, I, I just love it when a, a band really gets each other and comes together and you can see that with... Even in like in a bar in I don't know in in London, you go to some some like jazz clubs. You see artists riffing off each other, and even with session musicians who are just turning up to play with them for the night. And when they get each other, you can see them getting into it, and suddenly you just the atmosphere is created. So yeah, it, it is so awesome good. when that, that happens. But one of the really sad things about this whole story is that none of them got any credit on the album. Really? Because yeah, the the record company had already printed a hundred thousand sleeves for the vinyl with the new york artists listed on and they were told it's fine like if this goes well and there's more releases at that point we'll update it with with your names on here yeah and then they never did presumably it was a bit of a kind of verbal agreement so they just they just backed out of it yeah and it's really sad because there's there's moments in here it's not just the drumming from berg odegaard suggested the key change for Tangled Up in Blue that took it from G to A. It's it's the thing that makes that song absolutely brilliant and, and really pop when you're listening to it. If you go back and listen to the New York sessions that are recorded in G, it's a nice track, yeah. but it's not Tangled Up in Blue to the level where it's one of his finest pieces of work. That's such a shame because the, the song is so uplifting. It just works in that key. Yeah. One of the other guys, Greg Inhofer, he said, what might have happened if we got credit? Anytime I hear a Dylan song, whether I played on it or not, it just sticks in my craw and I go, man, what if, what if, what if? Why was I so stupid? Why was I so naive? I was taken advantage of totally. I guess if you think about it, if this guy had an album cover with Bob Dylan saying, this is the guy that recorded it, that's going to make a career. And instead, he's yeah. probably gone around saying, I was the guy that played on this album. And then everyone's like, no, you're not. It's, you know, <laughs> Eric Weisberg, because he's the only guy that seems to be credited on, on the album. And, and that's it. Yeah, I think there was an understanding and a knowledge in the Minnesota scene. There's an element of these guys having built pretty successful musical careers with people understanding that they've played on this album and that they've they've contributed to it but i still think that there are some key pieces in this album that are not down to dylan they're down to these guys that it just makes me sad that they didn't get as much credit as they should have done yeah well then again a a random podcast in the uk is chatting about them many years (laughs) later so you know they're probably not that bummed about it yeah there's a really great interview with odegaard in rock seller magazine that is the one that I read through that has a lot of this detail. And it's an absolutely fascinating read. So I I fully recommend getting into that. It's not just about this stuff. It's about how the album was recorded and some of the actual process of what they were doing. We just don't have time to get into that. But it's, it's a really good read and worth going and looking up. 
Cool. I'll check it out. Yeah. Should we dive into the songs? Yeah, let's do it. We have to start with Tangled Up in Blue. It's just wonderful. It's it's probably one of my favourite Dylan songs of all time. Dylan says about it, I was trying to deal with the concept of time, the way the the characters change from first person to the third person, and you're never sure if the first person is talking or the third person. But as you look at the whole thing, it really doesn't matter. And this is this mindset that he had in that sort of mid-70s period where he'd been influenced by a guy called Norman Rabin, who was an art class tutor at the time. And his angle on what he would do with his paintings had this big impact on how Dylan started thinking about lyrics and music. And actually, weirdly, seems to have been a little bit of a contributor to the breakup of his marriage because he's suddenly gone to a different mindset in terms of life and how he deals with things. And his wife was like, I don't really understand what the hell you're talking about. Yeah, And I think that sort of created this space between them. There's some great quotes from Dylan on this stuff. He put my mind and my hand and my eye together in a way that allowed me to do consciously what I unconsciously felt. What's different about it is there's a code in the lyrics and there's no sense of time. There's no respect for it. You've got yesterday, today and tomorrow all in the same room and there's very little you can't imagine not happening. And that's a quote that comes up time and time and time again Mm -hmm. when you read about this album. Yeah, this song, I've I've got to call out the drumming on this this track. The the pace is perfect and the drumming is absolutely brilliant because it's not it, well, it's not like a lot of drumming we discussed on our other albums with noise and crashing and and really co- complex stuff, but it's so refined. It just makes Dylan's whole song just stand out a lot. I'm I'm a huge fan of it on this album on on this track in particular. Yeah, and that's something that is noted in the article that I talked about in terms of Berg doing things that a normal drummer might not because of that jazz influence. I think it's a bloody brilliant track. Uh, The slightly on-edge acoustic guitar, it almost sounds slightly on, like it's not perfectly tuned to me. (laughs) Yeah. But it works and it sets this wonderful base for a story that unfolds of a romance that sort of winds in and out of the protagonist's life without really ever settling. And that out-of-time thing, that not quite aligning the stars never quite being there is just perfect i love it and for some reason i don't know why i always think of forrest gump in the middle of this so that verse of she was working in a topless place and i stopped in for a beer i just kept looking at the side of her face in the spotlight so clear like that bit in forrest gump where he turns up to where jenny's working it like for some reason that just always pops into my mind and i think again it's that story of two lovers that never quite managed to get their timing right yeah, well, it's it's a tale of all the time, isn't it? That one, it's a classic way of doing it, but but Dylan does it well. There's another thing in here that I love, which is he takes the edge off the seriousness of this song with some really brilliant wry humour. The line, I must admit, I felt a little uneasy when she bent down to tie the laces of my shoe <laughs> in the topless place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I assume you're still sort of there in, in the mind's eye. And that, again, I love the humour in that, but also the way that line is allowed to run on even though it doesn't really scan properly properly in quotes with the music yeah yeah it's great i'm a big old fan what a way to start an album where are we going next simple twist of fate yep it's such a sad song it's that theme of love lost through no fault of their own he woke up the room was bare he didn't see her anywhere he told himself he didn't care push the window open wide 
felt an emptiness inside to which he just could not relate, brought on by a simple twist of fate. And it's all about this guy who meets a girl. There's this thing of meeting someone and finding this person who's just got such a connection with them and then it doesn't work and keep chasing that connection, keep chasing that person or an idea of that person and just pretending outwardly that you don't give a shit, but just being ruined inside. Yeah, Dylan's brilliant at this. I mean, this this happens all the way through his career. He can create this kind of, this wistfulness that a lot of artists spend decades trying to recreate and he just does it time after time after time <laughs> again in his songs. Yeah. It's, it's quite impressive. And I love the beautiful simplicity to the music that allows his lyrics and the emotional delivery to take centre stage. Yeah, it's, it's a completely different pace to Tangled Up in Blue. Yeah. But it, it fits well. I got to jump next to Idiot Wind. <laughs> yeah, well, this is this is the... If you want to annoy someone who doesn't like Dylan, <laughs> Idiot Wind is the most... I think it's one of the, the most extreme examples of his voice, but also a track that after a few minutes, you're your head just gets locked into it and you get drawn into the song. It's so, I mean, it's a long track. And when it's being played, if I'm in a room with people who don't know Dylan and Idiot Wind came on, I'd get nervous because they'd be like, who is this idiot? <laughs> but if I'm on my own, I love it. Or with someone who knows Dylan because it's just, it's a brilliant, brilliant song. And it's kind of the linchpin of the album yeah. in a way. Yeah, it's definitely not a track that you'd think of as being enjoyable and easy on the ears. But no. it is Dylan, it is most furiously acerbic. He's sneering at the fucking morons of life here. And that includes himself. Closing lines of, we're idiots, babe. It's a wonder we can even feed ourselves. Yeah. He's not leaving himself out of this. Yeah, exactly. Lily, Rosemary and the Jack of Hearts. Ah, uh, that's a wonderful song. It's got It's got tempo to it. Yeah. I like the fact that he's given himself a bit of a break. This is a moment away from all that very personal heartbreak and it's a fun romp through a bank robbery wrapped up with a romantic fling. Good, isn't it? I, I think that this album, without that song, wouldn't quite shine in the way it does. It just takes the, the pressure off a little bit. Yeah, the rest of the album is very, very heavy and you're right, this boys everything up a little bit. It's the obvious track on the album to perk it up it's a little bit of a caffeine hit halfway through or yeah. most of the way through <laughs> well that's the thing and it, it takes up a chunk of the second side of the lp if you are listening to this on vinyl but it's an epic it is deservedly is epic yeah definitely and i love the fact that even though the musical motifs are basically just on a loop it's the story that keeps your interest and keeps you gathered into this piece of music yeah, and it feels just like a, a live recording. Mm -hmm. the, the way that it's so, th I was going to say thinly produced, but that's the wrong word. It's it's just simple. It just feels like they've just they're just playing in a in a studio somewhere, and you know they haven't had like seventy takes to make the guitar sound good. It's just it's all off the cuff. You could imagine this having been recorded in the back room of a folk pub. Totally. Uh, I'm going to jump to Shelter from the Storm. Ah. Oh. This is a classic Dylan song, isn't it? I mean, yeah. it's, if, if you've got Dylan fans out there, I think a lot of people would put this way up into their top 10 of Dylan songs. Yeah, this is another track that is just beautifully simplistic in the musical terms, but it's a powerhouse of emotion. It's the philosophical take on the power of relationships, both the good and the bad, that I love in here. So you've got 
suddenly I turned around and she was standing there with silver bracelets on her wrists and flowers in her hair. She walked up to me so gracefully and took my crown of thorns as, you know, this huge strength of femininity in one moment. She's almost the saviour of your your world. Yeah. And then later on in the song, now there's a wall between us, something there's been lost. I took too much for granted. I got my signals crossed. Just to think that it all began on an eventful morn stuff's gone wrong you know you've screwed up the relationship but the really sad thing about this even though he never explicitly says it is that's the moment where you know that it's beyond repair you can't there's nothing you can do here to bring it back from the brink yeah and 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 when she's the one that's saying you know i'll give you shelter from the storm and it's and and she's the one trying to help him and then he still messes it up. It's yep. like, oh, buddy, <laughs> what have you done? Yeah, that repeated verse ending of come in, she said, I'll give you shelter from the storm. There's something about that that just gives it, like you say, this beautiful, incredible narrative ability that he has in a way that is almost impossible to explain what it is about it that's so brilliant. Yeah, this is why some people say, some some people mention genius and Dylan in the same sentence, and um, you know I, I, I can see where they're coming from. Yeah, and it's fascinating because I went digging during research to find out what it was that people said about this stuff that made it stand out from so many other folk artists, mm. so many other musicians. No one seems to really put their finger on it. There's some really, really pretentious stuff written about it, but I read through it and was like, yeah, I don't think you're saying much here. Yeah. There's a lot of fancy words, but you've not got to the heart of what makes this brilliant. People who strip it back to simply, it's the pure emotion in here, and he's put it all on the line, heart on the sleeve, totally vulnerable. That's the thing that makes this work. Yeah, that and managing to say, say everything so succinctly. He, Apart he, from idiots, uh, yeah, yes, he did win. Um, but yeah, no, it's a it's a classic song, and well, I'm going to mention "Buckets of Rain" because it's a it's such a great way to close out an album. And I was well, I was going to say surprised. I shouldn't be surprised. He's only ever played it live once. Yeah, and it, it's classic the way that he opened in Detroit in like a show in 1990, and it's bonkers to think that this is such a big song and. He well, we will talk about his life stuff in a second, but um, I guess he's got a lot to choose from. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where Dylan fans themselves, the really hardcore fans at that gig, would have known exactly what was special about that. There've been a lot of people like, "Oh yeah, I like this song," and not realised. But (laughs) yeah, we should talk about the live stuff. Let's go there. So, one of the things that's fascinating about this album is that Dylan's played a lot of this stuff live many, 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 many times. So Tangled Up in Blue, for example. But he is constantly shifting bits of the song. So lyrics, narrative, there's all these little tweaks and he'll just keep doing it and keep evolving the song, which is very different to the way I'd say almost every other artist works where, yeah, they might embellish the music a bit. They might change the odd lyric here or there, but most of them don't go and rework something that's one of their most famous pieces of music time and time and time again across even multiple dates within the same tour he'll have stuff that just keeps changing it's never the same yeah exactly i i feel like this is my my moment to to step in with <laughs> my own experience of bob dylan live have you seen him live henry <laughs> yes i have <laughs> so i'm i'm going to preface this by saying my my disappointing experience 
wasn't because I was expecting him to play loads of songs that he should have played and he didn't do them because he played Tangle Up in Blue. Um, he played Blowing in the Wind and he played mm-hmm. a, a few others. But this was in 1998 and he got a huge crowd at Glastonbury. It was like it was in the afternoon and um, he must have been seriously drunk, like severely drunk or just all over wow. the place. I've never seen such a such a sad crowd. I was seeing oh. grown men walk away from the stage. The whole field started to empty out halfway through the set. It was actually emptying. I've never, ever, ever seen a live gig where I've seen people walking away. Wow. And these were men in their 50s who probably were kind of right when he was playing and right when he was releasing records. He was their lodestar, their the guiding light. And it was a shambolic set. He was He was all over the place. His guitar was terrible his singing was crap there's some that he started with some very lesser known songs and there was there were two guys next to me who were just like i i can't i can't stay here and keep this image of dylan in my head and they were all just walking off it was awful yeah i can imagine if you've waited 30 years to see him live and then you see him there and just would sully that forever which i guess it has a bit for you i mean have you managed to see him in in the following years at all no no i that was the because he has played since mm-hmm. and and i think that was much better much better received he probably got some feedback but no that one set was just it was just an absolute car crash it's awful oh, that's a pity i've never seen him live like i mentioned at the start of this podcast i don't think i'm a big enough fan of his to pay 100 quid for a ticket to see him at the royal albert hall I would see him if he happened to be at a festival that I was at, like you have. Yeah. But yeah, from what I've heard, it can be a little bit hit and miss with him. Yeah. As to what you get. No, I think I I, I wandered off to go to the dance tent and just jump around for a bit because it, <laughs> it's like I, I can't <laughs> listen to this. This is awful. Fair enough. I guess we should talk influences, but yeah. it's hard, right? <laughs> yeah. You, I guess from your side... If it's from childhood, you must have a pretty pretty large place in your um in your musical life. So for me, it's in amongst a whole bunch of folk music that my mum just absolutely loved from the sixties and seventies. So you've got Dylan, you've got the Carpenters, you've got people like Leonard Cohen. She just loved all of that stuff. So he's he's in that mix for me. I don't think we listened to it so much at home. Like it was on fairly regularly, but it wasn't like every other week my mum's listening to a Dylan album again. So it wasn't as huge an influence as I think it might be for some people listening to this or who are just Dylan fans where they've grown up with it and it's constantly on in the background. But it's certainly, I would credit Dylan as being one of a few bands that I've just uh, just have such a massive influence in terms of my love of more acoustic side of guitar music particularly folk yeah that's I I can totally see that how about you um he wasn't played as much um in our house I, I think I had a Dylan phase okay probably when I was in my mid-20s you know it's like when people say Oh, which of the most incredible books haven't you actually read? And it's like, oh, I haven't read 1984 by George Orwell. And it's like, oh, you can, well, how can you not have done that? And so Dylan was probably my little blind spot and I hadn't gone through yeah. his back catalogue. So I actually bought a ton of Dylan albums in FOP, actually, as you as you mentioned. Yep. And so I kind of felt like I had to make up for all of that. And so for probably for about a, a couple of years, I was big big into Dylan and then he's just now settled into the kind of standard musical backlog 
yep. with everyone else. So yeah, not actually really a big influence on me, but I'm I'm a I wouldn't say I'm a fan. I love his music, but I I'm most impressed with his lyrics because they're just yeah they're pretty special. Is this the album that you would pick, or is there a different one for you? Uh I bought Blonde on Blonde first. I haven't listened to all of them. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know if favorite Dylan albums. I, I feel like I don't have enough knowledge of his back catalogue to really start listing them in order. That's so I'm, I, I refuse to comment on that one. <laughs> Fair enough. Cool. We should leave it there because this is already longer than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, well, that, when, when you've got someone of, of his stature, you could go off into so many different avenues. I mean, I mentioned his book. That was Chronicles. He's done another one. There's a volume two of it. So there's there's just so much information on him. But yeah, well done for uh, getting him out there because uh, yeah, we've needed a heavy hitter for for a while, and uh, you've done more than that. So so great shout. I do think we should say any of our listeners who are much much bigger Dylan fans than we are and want to come on and talk about an album or two, please do because we'd love to get into some of the more obscure bits of Dylan's background that we just don't have time to get into today. So let, let us know if you fancy it. Yeah, there's so much interesting stuff floating around that you can do a podcast on it and it will be will be good fun. So definitely second that. Cool. All right. Cheers, mate. We should leave it there. Cheers, buddy. Have a good one. See ya. Thanks for joining us, folks. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong. 